In my personal opinion, some of the best uh, television ads currently are run by Geico Insurance, all right? Uh, and so you may have seen this ad. It's out recently, but if not, I want to show it to you real quick. It should be here on the screen for us. Well, the squirrels are back in the attic. Mom? Your dad won't call an exterminator. Can I call you back, Mom? He says it's personal this time. If you're a mom, you call at the worst time. It's what you do. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do. Where are you? It's very loud there. Are you taking a Zumba class? <laughs> All right. Uh, hopefully you've seen that commercial. If not, then there you go. A little plug for Geico. Um, you'll notice, though, it says, mothers, they call at the worst time. It's what they do, right? Uh, and Geico Insurance saves you money on car insurance. Is what they do, apparently, all right? That's um, what moms do, right? They call at the worst time. Uh, this passage we just read in Matthew 20 also illustrates another tendency of our lovable mothers. They always see the best in us. They always see the best in us, even to the point of delusion, right? Um, there's a bumper sticker, you may have seen it. It says, Jesus loves you, everyone else thinks you're a jerk. <laughs> I love that bumper sticker. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually pretty good theology, right? Jesus loves you, everybody else thinks you're a jerk. I would argue you could actually even substitute probably the word for moms, right, into that bumper sticker, right? Uh, moms, right, love us, but everybody else thinks we are a jerk, right? Moms are the ones who want what's best for us. They're the ones who think their sons can do absolutely anything. It would, if you know my mother, it would not be crazy for her to say something like, honey, I noticed, uh, I noticed it's an election year. You ever consider running for, for president? I mean, uh, well, I mean, not really in, not really in politics, Mom. Uh, ah, but you love public speaking. Come on, right? Uh, well, you know there's like an age requirement, right, for the office of president? Oh, honey, you've always hung out with people older than you, right? Uh, I mean, it would be, that would be pretty normal, actually, right? Moms uh, think that we can do absolutely anything. Um, I spend most of my time next door at Westminster Academy. Uh, before being there, I was at another Christian school, um, during another time in my ministry. And one thing we always see, right, and you see this in Christian schools, uh, is that mothers and fathers, let's be honest, parents in general, um, are, uh, what's the word, I don't know, uh, they overestimate sometimes their own children's ability, right? Uh, every parent in the world is convinced that their child is Albert Einstein in the classroom and Albert Pujols in the baseball field, Right? Uh, we have this sort of this understanding that our kids, and especially with moms, right, our kids can do anything. I used to kind of feel bad when I would try to, like, burst the bubble of some of these parents and remind them their kids aren't that special, right? Um, until I became a parent, and now I'm that same guy, right? I mean, Wyatt and Channing, in my mind, are just a like, cut above the rest, uh, and that's normal, right? And so we see this here. Um, in the commercial, but we also see this here in Matthew chapter 20. When James and John, when the sons of Zebedee, as they're known, um, and their mother roll up 
to Jesus, unsolicited, you can, you can kind of see the scene, right? The mom is like pinching their cheeks, and she asks if little Jimmy and little Johnny can sit, can sit, consider this, right? Can sit at the left and the right hand of the God of the universe's great white throne of light, right? Can little Jimmy and little Johnny sit on the left and on the right in the kingdom of God? And Jesus, in typically understated fashion, right, in typically understated fashion, says, Mrs. Z, right, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And the reason they ask this question, the reason that James and John and their mother uh, have the audacity to come and ask this question is because in their minds, they still have this worldly notion. They have this preconceived notion of what a king and a kingdom should actually look like, right? They've imported this understanding. It's like they've gone to Orlando and they've gone to medieval times, right? And they've had the dinner, they've watched the show, and they're on their way out, and there's this sort of uh, plywood cut out, right, where you can take a photo, and there's the damsel in distress with the hole for the face, right, and there's the court jester with the hole for the face, and there's the king with a big plush crimson crown, there's a hole for the face, right, and there's the left and right hand, right, the princes, and James and John stick their heads through, right, and they insert themselves into the equation. They have this sort of preconceived notion of what a king and a kingdom should look like. And and Jesus, you can almost picture it, right? Jesus has this smile on his face. He has a smile of compassion on his face. And he says, Mrs. Mrs. Zebedee, you don't know. You don't know what you ask. You don't know what you ask for. And he goes, James, John, come on, tell them, boys. What kind of kingdom are we building around here? Is this something that would be possible? And James and John go, certainly. We're certainly up to the task. And now Jesus smiles a little bit deeper. There's just a hint of a frown, but it's still compassionate. And he goes, James, John, still don't see it, do you? Still don't grasp what I've come to accomplish. So the question this morning is, whether it's James and John, whether it's Coral Ridge, here in 2016, what was the wrong understanding that informed this preposterous question on the part of James and John and their mother? And what are we to be taught here this morning as sons and daughters of the kingdom of God? And so today's sermon has has one simple point, one simple point that I think is appropriate here on this Sunday as we've also installed new officers. We have one simple point. As people who are brought from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God, Christ must recalibrate. He must recalibrate our understanding of position and prestige. As people who have been brought into the kingdom of God from the kingdom of this world, Christ must recalibrate. He must completely overhaul our understanding of position and prestige. If you've ever seen um, the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, fantastic movie, one of my favorite movies, uh, you'll know that it was a Stephen King uh, short story. It's actually called uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption as a short story, uh, made into a film. 
and it features Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, and you'll know the story uh, is of a man who is wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. And it's like early 20th century, early 1900s, um, and he's thrown into prison for a crime that he didn't commit, and he's serving out this sentence in this sort of maximum security uh, prison, and it's about just sort of the, the life there, and then it's also about his epic, his epic escape. Um, but one character in the film is a guy named uh, Brooks Hatlin. Brooks Hatlin. And you might recall that Brooks is the prison librarian. And he's serving a long sentence himself, uh, and he ends up being there about 50 years. But he's paroled after 50 years. And in the movie, uh, he's released from prison out into the world, and he can't handle it. He's become institutionalized. It's all he knows, uh, the prison life, the routine, uh, even the friendships. And he's out in the world, and it's just simply too much. He doesn't understand how life works now. Things have gotten faster, newer. Uh, It's overwhelming. And so he's frustrated, and he's fearful, and he even reaches a point of utter despair. You see, he needed to have his understanding of life recalibrated, and he didn't have that happen. We might recall another movie, uh, The Matrix, right, came out, uh, it's a little newer than The Shawshank Redemption, The Matrix trilogy, uh, where Neo, the main character in that story, Neo, uh, Neo, um, is uh, really a prisoner, right, of The Matrix, this sort of false reality. Uh, But he's set free, he's rescued, and he literally has to be uh, debugged and retaught uh, the nature of reality in the real world. As followers of Christ, our citizenship, we're told, has been transferred from the kingdom of, of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we have to allow ourselves for Christ, our Lord, to reprogram everything we know to be real. Everything we know to be real. And if you're like me, and, you're, and I think a lot of us are like this this morning, the, the, the notions of position and the notions of prestige and the notions of power are oftentimes the hardest things to rework. They're the hardest things to retool, to restructure, and to recalibrate. But what we see here in this account and what we'll see throughout all of the New Testament, right, is that the gospel is always challenging these preconceived notions that we simply import from the world into the church, that we import from the world into the kingdom of God. And what we see here in the account of Christ with the sons of Zebedee is that honor in the kingdom and power and prestige and position in the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom underneath the gospel is not at all what they think. To sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus is not to become CEOs and general managers of Christ Enterprises, to have the plush corner office, to make a name and a reputation for ourselves, to have a plaque hung in our honor. You see, what Christ does is he he affirms them. He affirms that they indeed have been put into a position of leadership. They're, one of the, they're two of the 12 disciples, right? And when Christ calls the 12 disciples, it's very intentional. He's reconstituting Israel. You have the 12 tribes. Now you have the 12 disciples of Christ. 
the 12 disciples of the true son of David, whose throne will continue forever. And these two men, right, have been put in an unbelievable position of authority, an unbelievable position of leadership as the disciples, but he's challenging their notion of leadership. And he's challenging their notion of how things will actually operate under his lordship. And he wants them, and I think us this morning, to see that just, hear this for a second, that just as life in the world to come will be accomplished through the paradox of Christ's saving death, our life in the present world will also be based upon the paradox of Jesus' dying to the way that the world operates. Does that make sense? Just as our life in the world to come is predicated upon the sacrificial saving death of Jesus, our lives here and now are also predicated upon this understanding that when the the Son of God himself came into the world, he was dying to all the social conventions that we're used to. And we see this all throughout his ministry. Let me me put it a a little bit of a different way. Um, Christ, right, throughout the entire course of his ministry, He's always operating, this is, a, this is a, like a paradigm-changing concept for me, okay? Um, Christ, throughout the entire course of his ministry, is always operating with what Martin Luther called left-handed power. It's the left-handed power of the gospel versus what we understand as the right-handed power of this world. And what Martin Luther meant is that Christ in his kingdom is operating with a power that for all intents and purposes looks like weakness and non-power, okay? He's operating in a, in, a, in a form that is weakness and not strength. And nothing, of course, serves as a better example than this than when Jesus dies, what looks like a helpless and powerless death, yet in and through that death, he is bringing out life. What looked like losing was winning. What looked like failure was the salvation of mankind. He's operating with what Luther called left-handed power. And so Jesus, in his ministry as well, though, before he dies, in his law-keeping life, not just in his um, law-atoning, law-satisfying death, but in his law-keeping life, then he's also operating underneath this sort of Mode, continually dying to the conventions of the world that enslave us. So that we too, as his followers, might be set free from their chains. Might be set free from their bondage. And perhaps no other convention of our world, no other convention of our world is more enslaving more consuming and life-draining, more joy-stealing and relationship-killing, more anxiety-producing and devoid of the gospel than the convention of having to assert ourselves over and above our neighbor. Of having to assert ourselves over and above our neighbor and jockey for position. It's enslaving. It's joy-stealing, and it dominates our lives. And if you're like me, you know this to be true. 
you know this to be true. My hunch is that many of us here this morning, many of us here this morning evaluated 2015 and its degree of success based upon how much we either improved or worsened our position in relation to a peer. Isn't that true? So much of how we gauged our success last year was predicated upon how much we either improved or worsened our position over and above a peer. Someone we know, a neighbor, a coworker, maybe even a loved one, a family member. And this could be true financially, uh, professionally, socially, even physically. Did we, uh, did we widen the gap between us and our neighbor? Did we make more money? Did we get a bigger house? Did we drive a nicer car? Are we in a better position in our office? Do we have a, a, a more prestigious title? Whatever it might be, right? And our success and our feeling of whether or not 2015 was a success uh, is so defined in our lives by whether those things happened. Did I close the gap? Did I widen the gap? And where now do I stand in the hierarchy of things? And what Jesus here calls James and John and calls us as well to die to are these notions of position and prestige. He calls us to die to these notions of position and prestige that are expressed not in service and deference to neighbor, but in success and dominance over our neighbor. And if this has to be true in the arena of life, right, outside, then it has to be even more true for those of us who live life here in a community of believers. Christ wants us as pastors, us as church officers, to be people who lay our lives down for the flock, who lay our lives down for the good of the gospel and this community, who desire not to excel in slickness, right, but in service. And we do that because we follow the example of our greater pastor, right, our greater shepherd, Christ, who we're told elsewhere did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And we do that as leaders, and we do that as a congregation. And by God's grace, hopefully then it trickles out into our communities, right? Into our social circles, into our workplaces. And can you imagine? Can you imagine if you... If we, right, had churches, if we had communities that were dominated not by, not by taking, right, but by, by giving, not by, not by um, self-promotion, right, but self-sacrifice, not by achievement, but by service. You see, like Neo in The Matrix, we've been blind, and we are blind, naturally, to the reality of position and power. And we must allow the gospel to rewire everything. And the reason Christ does this is not to rob us of the accolades that we're after, but he understands that the accolades that we're after really won't satisfy us. And that there's actually greater fulfillment and greater um, freedom in a life not lived to build our own names, 
but to build the names of others and also to build the name of him, more importantly, right? That's why in the Lord's Prayer, right, what do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if that sounds like a lot, right, if that sounds like pressure, if that sounds like a yoke that we just can't bear, there's good news for us also alongside of that. You see, Jesus understands that we are slow learners, okay? He understands that we come in (coughs) with an operating system that is counter to all of that and has to be reprogrammed. Um, If you've, (coughs) excuse me, if you've read um, the books for the Hunger Games or seen the movies, then you'll know that um, in the Hunger Games you have uh, the hero sort of figure, right, Cat, um, the woman, and her partner, kind of like co-rebel, uh, Peta, all right? And you'll know that in the story, uh, they are rebelling against, it's sort of like post-apocalyptic North America, uh, and there's this oppressive government uh, run by President Snow, and they are uh, rebelling against this system where uh, the impoverished and the poor have to offer their children basically sacrifices to the government. Uh, in this just twisted and sick system of competition, and they're rebelling against that. But uh, as the story moves along, this is a spoiler alert, I apologize, but they've been out a while. Um, PETA, you'll know, is uh, eventually sort of captured by this government, and he is um, reprogrammed. I mean, and he is po- his mind is poisoned, basically. But they rescue him, thankfully, But in the rescue process and then afterwards, it's a slow, painful task. Everything he knew to be true was poisoned. Um, And he had to be, uh, he had to relearn life once again, okay? And relearn good from evil and and all these kinds of things. But it was a slow process. It was a painful process. Uh, It was a difficult process at times. And it required desperate measures. You see that the, the same is true for us. Same is true for us. Christ must reprogram our understanding of things, of how life in his kingdom works. It works by paradox. Weakness is strength. Down is up. Losing is winning. We don't uh, desire seats of honor, but we take the seat in the back. You see, Christ has to uh, sort of give an antidote to the poison of the world that naturally fulfills or fills our understanding. And that's why, that's why, and we'll, we'll kind of look at this as we bring things here to a, to a full circle, that's why in this text, and this is interesting, okay, in both Matthew and in Mark, that's why this story of Jesus with James and John occurs immediately before Christ will encounter two other men. He encounters two other men on the road. And these two men are blind. And what's fascinating is you see it here. Uh, If you look in your Bible, look at verse 21 of chapter 20. When James and John come to Jesus and their mother come to Jesus, he says to her, what do you want? And she asks her question. You look over now at verses 29 through 34. We'll read them in a second. Christ comes to two men, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
In fact, if you were to look in Mark's gospel, it's the exact same phrase, verbatim. What do you want me to do for you? Let's read the story together. Look at verse 29, chapter 20. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. It's fascinating. One kind of clue to sort of understanding the gospels is to be mindful of structure. Look for where these stories are positioned. It's very, very intentional by the writers. And a lot of times structure is as informative to us as the words themselves. What's happening here is that Christ intentionally, after having this conversation with two men, James and John, who are seeking honor for themselves, who have this sort of um, misunderstanding of how his kingdom will operate, immediately takes them and then leads them to two other men who are utterly blind. And he asks these two men the same question he asked James and John, which is, what do you want me to do for you? And I think the gospel accounts are structured this way to drive home the reality that our jockeying for power and position, which is so natural in the human life, and unfortunately even so natural at times in the church, is so small and so petty compared to the pressing needs of people all around us. People who are blind in need of sight. People who are hurting in need of healing. People who are lost in our community and who need to be found. And to drive home the reality that we're like these men who've lost their sight, right? That James and John are like these two blind men who don't have sight at all when James and John, and by extension us, make the church about our names, make the gospel about our names, and not the name and the renown of Christ. But I think alongside of that, he also orders the events this way to demonstrate something. To demonstrate something. That even when we fail and falter, because we all do, we all are naturally self-promoters, right? We're all naturally self-focused before we're others-focused. And here's what Christ wants us to see. There's hope for us, right? There's hope for us. Because I think Christ orders these events the way that he does to demonstrate that the same pity that he has on the physically blind men from the road is the same pity and healing and compassion that he has for us in our moments of gospel blindness, in our moments of spiritual blindness. And when we fail and we falter and we forget and our priorities and perspectives do sometimes get out of order, Christ wants us to see that that's why he came. That's why he came. To live that life of self-deference that we have oftentimes failed to live, but then to empower us to go out um, and once again make that our priority. And he wants us to see that it's because of such blindness, both physical 
and spiritual, that he will leave that road with the blind men. And this happens again in both Matthew and Mark. And he will keep journeying. And the very next story is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where once again, in a posture of self-deference, in a posture of humility, he will lay his life down to remedy all the ills of mankind, physical, spiritual, and everything in between. That's our Savior. That's the God that we worship, and that's the nature of the kingdom that he has called us into for 2016 and for the years to come.